Welcome to the Ask a Club Fitter podcast. Answering your questions on all things golf equipment and club fitting. Here's your host, hoping to help you play better golf. He's a PGA professional, founder of Tour Fit Golf, and has worked with some of the world's best players. Tom Davies. Hey, everyone. How's it going? It's been a while since uh, the last pod. <clears throat> I actually had, a, had to scroll through Spotify just now and just see when the last pod was actually uploaded. And it was well over a year ago, and I can't believe it. It's gone, it's gone so quick. So we've, we've had a lot, lot on over the last 12 months. We've actually uh, moved locations. So we're now based at uh, Langland Bay Golf Club, which is a beautiful part of the world and a beautiful club uh, in South Wales. Um, for anybody who's played here or been here, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but we've we've worked really, really hard over the last 12 months. We've uh, redone the studio, uh, brought all of our equipment, all of the workshop uh, equipment, all of our building equipment all across, and uh, we've got a pretty cool setup here now, to be fair. But it's, I, honestly, I'm just gobsmacked. I kind of thought that it might have been like six or seven months since the last podcast, but I can't believe that it's uh, it's, it's now on fifteen months ago. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so yeah, we've got we've got a lot of content to uh, to get through. I'm definitely not going to get through all of it today, but I've got some really really good plans uh, for the podcast and to bring some more content uh, to all of the listeners. I know there's been a lot of people asking me when the podcast is coming back, and uh, you know, giving us some good feedback. So on that note, if anybody. Uh, does want to leave us a review or subscribe um, please do so it does help massively with uh, trying to get guests on uh, I recently tried to uh, I inquired about getting a guest on and the first thing they asked me is kind of uh, you know how many downloads how many um, how many subscribers have you got so a- anybody that, that can hit the subscribe button it would be massively appreciated and leave us a review that would also be amazing um so today's podcast, I thought I would get into a bit of club building. We are lucky enough to be the only facility in Wales that actually does club fitting and club building uh, together. And I think they're two things which uh, which go hand in hand. I'm a real firm believer that a good club fitting is absolutely useless without a good build. Um, it's kind of like, you know, going to get fitted for a suit and they're measuring you really good, but you know they, they don't kind of uh, they don't put it together very well. And it just doesn't fit. So um, I'm a big big believer in that. But it's it's the kind of thing which I think that unless you've got a half decent understanding of what goes on doing a club build, you probably wouldn't appreciate it that much because you know we all go into shops and we see clubs on the shelf and they all look the same. But until you actually start to break them down and uh, you know measure the loft, measure the line, measure the length, measure the swing weight. Um, you know, check all the finer details on the club. It's not until then, really, that you know you can see that there's there's often a, a bit of a difference between you know one club and the next, and that and that's really the reason why we do build in here. It's I can assure you, it's not to uh, to make more money because we don't. <laughs> it actually costs us more money uh, to build the golf clubs for our clients. Um, And I just think that, you know, overall, you know, if we, if we can make sure that the clubs that are going in our clients' hands and our customers' hands have have been built to the best possible spec, 
that we can do. Um, it just it just means that you know I can sleep at night, <laughs> and um, and I know that you know our golfers and our customers have got the best possible chance of uh, of playing really well. So uh, last night I opened up some questions on Instagram, and again anybody any of the listeners who want to interact with us and want to ask some questions, please follow us on Instagram. Uh, we often and will be uh, publishing opportunities for you guys to, to send questions through. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great platform for us to do that. And we, we normally get really good interaction from uh, from a lot of the listeners. So I've got a bunch of questions which I really want to get into straight away. And there's quite a few of them. I don't quite know which way they're going to go here, but I'm probably going to go down a rabbit hole on a few of them. Uh, but I'm just going to I'm just going to let loose and, and go for it. So question number one. How out can off-the-shelf clubs be from what it says on it? Loft, lie, weight, etc. So this is a really, really good question. So I'm assuming this is kind of, uh, this will obviously apply to, to all golf clubs. So if you go into a shop and you see a club which is uh, 9.5 and it's standard length, standard lie, standard grip, etc. You know, how far away from standard in inverted commas is is that product now <clears throat> all of the companies have got have got tolerances so there's tolerances on loft lie length swing weight and as long as they're within those tolerances then they get passed and uh, they will get on the shelf but essentially you know the problem is often the tolerances <laughs> so the tolerances are not hugely tight with certain uh, manufacturers now I'm not going to go into kind of like naming the details here because you know I certainly um, you know I don't want to upset any of uh, of, of my suppliers uh, which I value uh, very much um, but to give you an example so for a custom fitted set of clubs i think anybody who listens to this podcast has probably got um you know a half decent idea on on club fitting um or even just looking to learn about club fitting but if we just look at lie angle in particular so if somebody comes in to, for a fitting with me as an example or any of my staff i'd like to think that there's a big difference between fitting somebody into a standard lie angle or two degrees up certainly for me as a golfer if I was to put a club down in front of me and standard lie or two degrees up, I would see a massive difference. And certainly with a wedge, I think for me, if it was two degrees out, I would borderline it'd be unplayable for me. Um, but unfortunately, with some of the uh, companies, the tolerance on lie angle is two degrees. So if you order a set of clubs which is one degree upright, they will pass on one degree flat. So... To me, that is uh, that's too much uh, as a tolerance, which is why the, we want to make sure that if somebody wants two degrees flat or want two degrees upright, whatever it is, they get two degrees upright. And I just I just think that uh, the type of golfer that comes through our door who typically is a, between a handicap of, of about five and, and 18, who wants to invest in a good set of golf clubs, they want to help themselves play better by investing in these golf clubs. I think that, you know, getting the lie angles correct is is really important. So come back around in a circle here, and I told her I'd go down a rabbit hole. Um, 
they can they can be out by um, a, a, a fair amount. And if you think, you know, on on lie angle, that's one thing. Um, swing weight is another. I mean, I grabbed two wedges from the shop, which are, which have been built by uh, one of our suppliers. Um, again, I'm not naming names, but I just quickly checked the swing weights, and we had one of the wedges was D 3.5, and one of them was D 5.9. So that's a ma- massive, massive difference. And, you know, sometimes there's challenges around head weights. Uh, but, you know, that, that doesn't mean that you should just accept that we, you know, should all get golf clubs which, uh, you know, have, have, have not got that level of detail um, put, put into it. So um, the, the truth of it is, and this was uh, asked by Steve Ellis, off-the-shelf clubs and even custom-fitted clubs which are built by the manufacturers, um, can be quite quite a bit out. And I, I've seen a few shockers, to be fair, in my time. Um, but it's nothing generally that can't be fixed, you know, like uh, we've, we haven't always built clubs, uh, you know, for our customers. The first couple of years of trading, uh, you know, the, the manufacturers were building for us, um, but we would always check them before, you know, giving them to the customers. So, you know, it's very rare that we would you know, give a set out without making a couple of adjustments. But it's worth getting them checked. It's worth getting them built really well. And especially these days, I mean, I've even feel in the last couple of years that the prices on irons in particular, you know, are going up tremendously. It's very rare now that we're selling a set of clubs, which is, you know, south of of a thousand pounds. I remember my first set of clubs, Bit of a relic for anybody who's listening now. Um, I said a Maxfly Revolution uh, 3 to Sandwedge. Uh, back in the day, three hundred and ninety-nine quid. I remember getting them, as it happens, off the shelf. But um, yeah, price on things these days is uh, is crackers. But I hope that answers your question, anyway, Steve. And uh, any other questions you've got on that, just uh, just fire them back at us. Uh, next question by uh, Nick Good. Uh, how often should loft and lie angles be checked for us mere mortals? So, I think as a minimum. If you're taking your golf fairly seriously, you're investing in lessons, you're investing in a good set of, go- uh, set of golf clubs, um, you need to check them at least once a season, I would say. And if you've got forged golf clubs, which are really soft, so something um, like bladed golf clubs or uh, a Mura or any clubs really which are considered quite soft, um, you may want to check them, give them a mid-season check as well. But I would... I would consider that kind of investment on, you know, 35 quid, 40 quid to get your loft and lies checked. Um, a really, really good investment. And, um, you know, even if they don't need to be nudged at all and they're all pretty good, then at least you've got the peace of mind then that going into the season that you're uh, you're going to be on song and the equipment you're using is going to be fit for purpose. So that would be my recommendation. And I'm going to go into this a little bit deeper. The one thing I would make sure for anybody who is thinking about getting loft and lies checked is the most important thing, in my opinion, is it's not the person who's doing your loft and lies. It's the equipment they're using. So don't get me wrong. Some people haven't got a clue how to do loft and lies, uh, and that's a problem. But I can assure you I've been to locations and, you know, having travelled all around the world with TaylorMade and 
not having the luxury of having a truck every week when we used to go to South Africa, Australia, you know, down into Asia. We'd be using different gauges kind of often week in, week out. And the gauges are the thing which has got the biggest tolerance on them. So I'd make sure that they're using a really, really good loft and lie machine um, and a reliable loft and lie machine. So I've, I've used a couple in the past where... You know, there'd be certain locations where I would go and I wouldn't do the loft and lies because I'd put the same club into the loft and lie machine three times and I'd get three different readings. Um, and I consider myself fairly uh, competent in doing a loft and lie. <coughs> but often the machinery that, that, you know, golfers and club pros use uh, can often give you quite big tolerances between one reading and, and the next. So just be careful on it. My recommendation is a Mitchell machine. But even some of the really, really old school machines, you know, they, they can be rock solid in terms of, um, you know, the way in which they measure and how reliable they are. So um, I would have a check of that. The worst ones that I've seen, for loft and lie anyway, and this company does a lot of good stuff, the Golf Mechanics loft and lie machine, which is a red and grey one. I've actually got one for um, a putter loft and lie machine by Golf Mechanics. And I use a lot of their equipment. We use their swing weight scale. Um, we've got a couple of their rulers, uh, shaft cutters, etc. They, they, they make some really good stuff. But I found that some of the loft and line machines I've used from those guys not to be very good. And I don't know where they're kind of like they were just old and, um, you know, just needed a bit of kind of um, a bit of an MOT. But, um, yeah, I, f- I found those to be um, not great. But anyway, before I slam any other companies and get the companies on the uh, on the phone here telling me that I'm talking a load of rubbish, uh, let's go on to the next question. What's the best way of getting into club building? That's a really good question. So I thought about this last night when I seen the question come through and it's really not easy because there's not a lot of uh, facilities that can build clubs. So there's a lot of, a lot of places that will repair clubs um, but I think there's a difference between kind of repairing a club and being able to build a full spec, uh, a full set to, to a really high standard. Um, and t- typically, you know, there's a lot of people who would be very, very capable of building clubs. It's not a difficult thing to do, in my opinion, as long as you've got all of the equipment to do it. So, you know, you need a good shaft cutter, you need uh, a good loft and line machine, you need some rulers, you need good swing weight scale, you need um, a grinding machine. Um, you know, there's all sorts of other things that you need as well. You need a good uh, a good stock on swing weights, which can go into all different clubs. Uh, you know, you'll need uh, some often lead tape, some really good adhesive. Uh, you know, there's it's, it's quite a big investment, to be fair. You need a, a ferro polisher, some acetone, a good gripping station. Um, so there's lots of things that, that you'll need. And I think the problem getting into club building is probably the fact that, you know, there's not many facilities that... Um, that have got everything that you you need to to build, you know, uh, a good a good set of golf clubs, and at least a good set of golf clubs, kind of day in day out, you know. Um, but if I look back at where I started, I started doing the PGA training, and before I even started doing my training, I was kind of taught how to do a few repairs. Uh, by uh, the first pro that I ever worked for was a guy named Chris Riley. I'm still in touch with him now. Great guy. Um, 
and get on with him tremendously well. But he was the one who taught me about um, you know club repairs, and I even remember him showing me how to to do the whipping on an old persimmon persimmon driver. But um, yeah, I think I think getting into kind of like club repairs to start off with is probably a good way of doing it. Uh, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, and I think it's a bit daft anyway. That there's a lot of people that come in and get a club repaired, and you know they say, "Oh, just just stick whatever in it. I don't care. I don't care what about the grip. I don't care about the the shaft." And it honestly, it breaks my heart. <laughs> it really does <laughs> because in my mind, I want to make sure that the grip is good. I want to make sure that the shaft is right. I want to make sure that the swing weight is right. You know, I'm often asking them for clubs either side, but I guess my point is, is a, a lot of people who get their clubs repaired. Um yeah they just haven't got high standards for 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 what they're after in terms of the job and um yeah it's it's probably not a bad way to start because you're not going to probably not going to be held um you know accountable within half a swing weight or half a degree um to, to start to build but it's not the way I would do it definitely not uh, in terms of doing a repair but it's probably a good place to start and I don't know whether you know you could probably invest in a ruler invest in you know you don't have to buy shaft cutters you can buy a pipe cutter invest in a little swing weight scale uh, a ferrule polisher um, maybe a loft and lime machine if you can find one kind of on ebay anybody kind of selling up there's a lot of golf pros now who are kind of leaving the industry certainly the the retail industry anyway so you might be able to pick a pick a decent one up here or there um, but yeah maybe make a little investment get in touch with a, a couple of pros locally and, and just see if you can take on you know, that, that part of the business for them. Okay, let's go on to uh, the next question. I told you I'd waffle on. Uh, let's have a look. Should you match swing weights for irons, woods, driver? Great question. Great question, and I love this question um, because it's actually quite hard to answer. So, first and foremost, for anybody who doesn't understand swing weight, uh, when you put a club on a swing weight scale... Essentially, what you're trying to do is you're trying to balance through the set the difference between the top 14 inches of weight and the rest of the club. So as an example, if we want to swing weight a set of irons to D3, as an example, obviously the clubs are going to be different lengths unless you're using you know, a one length set. Um, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to match the weight at the top 14 inches of the club versus the rest of the whole club in general. And that's one of the reasons why as the clubs get longer, the heads get lighter is because you're just trying to match that overall weight. Now, generally, I think swing weight in uh, is a pretty decent process. There are other process processes um, like MOI matching. Uh, I've not personally done that myself, um, but there's a lot of places that do it and have a lot of success with it. And they would say the swing weighting is not that great. But swing weighting has been around for a very, very long time. I know that they build clubs uh, to swing weights on the vast majority of the tour trucks that I've ever been on across all of the, the manufacturers anyway. Um, and that's, you know, PJ Tour, European Tour, going to Asia, Live Tour. You know, swing weighting is still a thing, and it's a thing that's done at the highest level. So there's got to be a reason why, you know, why they're using that process. Um, but I guess the one thing that you've got to think of is that swing weighting is good, 
and you know it will give you a fairly consistent feel through the bag but you've got to ask yourself is that what you want so from a from a set of clubs and from a spec does it meet the demand of the job that you're trying to do with that golf club so as an example let's just say we had irons which were d3 does it mean that all of our wedges have got to be d3 because you know the speed that you're going to be applying to a seven iron as standard when you're hitting a relatively full shot is nowhere near going to be the speed that you're applying to you know a 58 degree wedge which you might hit it full from time to time but the chances are you're going to be chipping pitching uh, hitting bunker shots with it so perhaps the demands of that club means that you can go a little bit heavier and potentially with a driver you know you might not want to feel you know a d3 swing weight you might want to bring it down a little bit to d1 or d2 it's often something which is quite difficult to measure because like i said earlier it's not something that you know is readily available when you go to a studio to measure the swing weights um but i would say that it's not absolutely necessary to uh, change or have the same swing weight right throughout uh, it's quite common if you were to spec a set of golf clubs from a tour player, they probably wouldn't have the same swing weights from driver right the way through until you know the highest lofted wedge. So it would vary a little bit, but I would say that their clubs would be built with purpose, and there would be uh, an intention behind it, even if it's just to try and match you know a feel from you know a previous club, or you know just match the specs of what they've what they've had previously. So. Um, I would say to answer the question or to give you a yes or no answer, I would say uh, no, it's not necessary, but it's a bloody good start point. I can assure you that. <laughs> you know, if um, if you get all of your clubs at D3 as an example or D2, it's a really, really good start point. And if you haven't got that level of detail uh, in your club builds, it'd be worth having it checked by someone and just see what the swing weights are. Because I think you'd be quite surprised at you know, how far off maybe some of the wedges could be, some of the drivers, some of the fairway woods. Um, but worth having a check and uh, seeing if it matches up with any performance gaps that you've got or any uh, issues with feel. So good, good question, man. Next question um, by Gareth Curzon. Custom My Club. Shout out to Custom My Club. Um, do a great job on uh, restoring uh, putters. Uh, based in South Wales as well. Um, give them a follow if uh, if you can. They genuinely do a really good job. Some of their work that they've been putting out is uh, is awesome. But the question uh, Gauss asked is, what is the most, impo- most important part to get spot on in a club build? What a cracker of a question. And again, thought about this a lot overnight. Um, it'd be really easy to say all of it is important because it is every single bit of it is important. The length, the lie, the loft, the swing weight, head weight, uh, all needs to be right. But I think coming back to it, and especially if you, you, you start to kind of like come back in the process of club building, like what is the important part to get right to ensure that the other parts are going to be okay as well. And I think it's length of club. So as an example, Let's just say you build a club and it's half an half an inch out, which you know in club building terms is 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 massive, absolutely massive. There's a half inch between each club in your irons, so being half inch out is um, is is crackers and just not acceptable. But if it was half an inch out, it would mean that 
swing weighting would be a real challenge uh, where if it's too short, you'd be adding loads of weight to the club. I mean, even a quarter of an inch. quarter of an inch is going to make a huge difference to swing weight in. You're probably going to find a difference between three or four swing weight points, depending on what club that you would make the error with. Um, so, yeah, if you even if you were a quarter of an inch out, it would mean that the swing weight in would be an issue. It would mean that... It wouldn't mean that you would get the loft and lie wrong, but it would definitely mean that it would play differently. So... <clears throat> length of club does not dictate how you would change the loft and lie because essentially you're measuring the bottom part of the shaft uh, to the uh, the sole of the club and trying to make sure that angle is right. But of course, that angle will be different when that club is sitting down on the ground if the length of the club is different as well. So um, yeah, I think length of club is something which needs to be absolutely bang on. Um and if you were to speak to a good club builder, you know, length, if, if you said to them, I want standard length, the first question they would ask is, um, you know, what what standard? Because there's a whole host of different standard lengths. There's a couple of different ways of uh, cutting a club as well to a measurement. So as an example, if we were to say, I want a club built to 37 inches, then my question would be, do you want it cut to 37 inches or do you want it end of grip 37 inches because there's a difference between how you would make that golf club depending on what that requirement was so as an example if it was 37 inches for seven iron and it was end of grip you would need to cut that three sixteenths shorter on my ruler some rulers might be a little bit different but generally three sixteenths shorter to allow for the grip to go on to make sure that when you measure to the end of grip is 37 inches now what i always do is I always make sure that I cut to 37 inches and then put the grip on. I always feel like if I've got a little bit more length to play with, and we are talking about three sixteenths of, of an inch here, so it's, it's not a huge amount, but it does have an effect on uh, on swing weight as an example. But I just think that if we cut to 37 inches, I've always got somewhere to kind of go if the player does feel like that the clubs are a little long. It's very unlikely, but... Um, you know, we, we can make adjustments from there. I just think that 37 inches end of grip for a 7 iron, as an example, is is on the short side um, of things anyway. But to answer the question, uh, length, I think, is the most important part to get right because it happens, that cut happens so early in the process that it's just going to have a knock-on effect right through it. I've got another question here, but I can't find it. Uh, here we go. Your thoughts on graphite options for putter builds? What a bumper of a question this is. I love it. Uh, so, first things first, why are we seeing a bit of a trend in club manufacturers and shaft manufacturers pushing graphite shafts for putters? Because weight is is quite important for, uh, for putting. So it's definitely not to make the putter lighter to start off with. But to give you context here, if... You imagine, right, if you take your putter to the top of your backswing and stop, the weight of the head on that putter will apply a force on that shaft and it will typically start to bow down towards the ground or towards the golf ball. So almost as if the head is trying to get back in front of the shaft, if that makes sense. So it's just physics and it's just the way in which, um, you know, that weight is working around the momentum of you moving that handle or that shaft. But because... The head weight is so heavy with a putter 
and typically the speed and tempo is on the slower side. What you would see if you were to, to really slow it down and see a putter in super, super slow motion, you would see that putter almost wobbling where it goes forward and back, forward and back, forward and back, forward and back, all through, uh, through the stroke. And the putter head almost oscillates uh, around the handle. That comes from you know the flex in the shaft and the weight of the head. So why would that be a problem? Well, if that putter is oscillating... The loft is changing, the lie is changing, the face angle is changing constantly through that stroke, which is something that you can't really control if that shaft is bending. So the reason why a lot of manufacturers now are going towards graphite shafts is because it prevents that shaft bending and it becomes more stable. So, I mean, you take a company like um, uh, Breakthrough Technology, uh, they've got the stability shaft and it does what it says on the tin. It just keeps that head more stable when you're swinging the putter. So, I mean, these are expensive shafts. They're about 200 quid uh, per shaft to put in your putter. So, I mean, you buy a Scotty Cameron for 400 and bung one of those shafts in for 200. You've got an expensive putter there. Um, but it's one of those things which is, is another stone which is, uh, which is not left unturned. I think they're fantastic. The problem is with some of these shafts is because you've got to add so much weight and because graphite will become so stiff, the balance of feel then uh, becomes quite difficult. So I've tried a stability putter shaft uh, in uh, one of the putters I've got. You literally have got to cut your putter shaft in half and put the stability shaft on it. I don't know if anybody's seen these or seen them installed, um, but they, they're really, really good. And I, I actually got one of the first versions of them. Um, I've got one here somewhere. Um, yeah, I can actually see it now. It's actually a really, really fat shaft, and it looks really weird. Um, to me, it didn't feel that good, but it felt really stable at the same time. It didn't feel like that club was wobbling around anywhere. I could definitely feel a difference. I know if you were to put these uh, these shafts in a robot um, into a putter and, and test them versus a normal shaft versus a stability shaft, they would definitely show you uh, improvements on data. But like I've said, the balance in the feel is is quite a difficult one. And that's why if you have a look at the shaft options they've got now compared to three or four years ago, they've got different versions and um, you know, just trying to, to give you a really good product, which is stable, doesn't change the face angle, doesn't change the loft, um, and also feels quite good as well. And if you can if you can find a putter shaft which feels good, it's stable uh, and also looks good, it's important. I know there's uh, KBS do some really, really cool shafts with a lot of different colors on them. Um, there's some on our website. But, um, yeah, I actually really like them. Uh, but I would definitely try and test them first if you're thinking about buying one. So that pretty much wraps up uh, this podcast. I'm just going to double check that uh, we've not got any more questions on you. I don't think we have any more last minute ones. No, I think that's pretty good. So, like I said earlier, if you've enjoyed this episode, don't be afraid to give us, uh, leave us a review. Maybe send it on to one of your pals, uh, one of your golfing pals you think might benefit from it. Um, but outside of that, I hope the weather improves and we all get out to play some golf. Uh, and uh, fingers crossed, I will uh, catch you all soon.